Have you ever had a time intentionally set apart for reflection? A time particularly devoted to study? Maybe you took an intensive course to dive deep into a particular subject or a degree program that required intense focus. Personally, I don't know that I fully appreciated this in college, but in seminary I was so aware of what a gift it is to have time set apart for study and reflection. But of course, you don't have to enroll in a degree program to have time and space for reflection. Perhaps you find time for meditation on a daily or weekly basis, time set aside in your schedule each day, or the type of contemplation that happens as you go for a walk down in the park. In today's scripture passage, Jesus had a specific time set apart for reflection as he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Most certainly there were beautiful times of prayer and meditation, but we know that there were also challenges that Jesus encountered there. There he saw the personification of evil and brokenness as he faced three temptations, as he was encouraged to participate in the misuse of power or manipulation. There Jesus must have seen so clearly the need for redemption and healing and deliverance. And perhaps, I have to imagine, he reflected during that time on the work that was ahead of him. The phrase, the work of Christ, is often used to refer to the unique impact that Christ had upon the world and upon those who follow Christ. This Lenten season, we will be focusing our thoughts on the atonement, centering our reflections around the word delivered as we consider the redeeming, restoring, liberating, delivering work of Christ. When we talk about the atonement, we are referring to the reconciliation of God and humankind through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But there are multiple ways to understand the atonement. There really is no one central perspective from which we look at this topic. Instead, the church has always, throughout its history, accepted, even celebrated, multiple theories of the atonement. And as we look through the New Testament, we see a variety of metaphors and stories and references that give us different ways of looking at the full picture of the atonement. One thing that all of these different theories hold in common is that they all consider the work of Christ to be central to their reflections. For some, that is specifically the work of Jesus on the cross and resurrection. For others, the work of Christ 
is attentive to the entire scope of Jesus' life and teachings, his healings, and acts of compassion. And so as we begin to think about the atonement, I'd like to encourage us to picture a large circle, people standing all around, looking upon Jesus, both Jesus' life and Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. And in this big circle surrounding Jesus, we have so many different viewpoints and perspectives. We have ways to learn from each other's perspectives as well. Some people might stand in a place that's referred to as holding a substitutionary atonement theory. From this perspective, looking on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, there's emphasis on the fact that Jesus has taken something from us, has taken a debt or a, um, a problem that we have, and has substituted himself, and therefore has given us redemption and restoration by being the substitute for us. One early Christian thinker was Origen, and he wrote that we can think of ourselves as being held ransom by the powers of evil or even personified by the devil, and that Jesus Christ pays our ransom, if you will, in order to restore our relationship with God. Another viewpoint in this bigger area would be a satisfaction theory. Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century wrote a book called Cur Deus Homo, Why Did God Become Human? And basically Anselm wrote that because of the sin that we as individuals have committed and the brokenness of the whole world, there is a debt that needs to be paid to our perfect and righteous God. Because God is perfect, the payment needs to be perfect. But because we are fallible people, we are unable to pay the debt that exists between us and God. And so therefore there's a need for this God-human, one who's both fully divine and fully human, to pay the debt we can't pay for ourselves. I think you can see where that's going. Jesus, God incarnate, fully God and fully human then, is the one who can satisfy that debt and pay back to God, our perfect creator, in order to reconcile us to God. Some of these themes you can see in the hymns that are familiar to us. So in your red hymnal, Hymn number 194, O sacred head now wounded. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinner's gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor. Vouchsafe to me thy grace. This is the satisfaction theory of atonement. 
one way of looking at Jesus and thinking about how we are made right with God. But in this circle that surrounds Jesus, there are so many different vantage points, so many different perspectives. Maybe you find yourself standing over here in the shoes of someone named Peter Abelard, who talked about the moral influence theory of Jesus and focused not just on the death and resurrection of Jesus, but more specifically on the life of Jesus. Everything Jesus did, everything Jesus taught us, And so our good and loving teacher, Jesus, guides our feet into the way of peace, teaches us how to live, and in so doing, draws us into right relationship with God. This is the moral influence theory of the atonement, and you might see it a little bit in the hymn, God of Grace and God of Glory, which is on page 358 in your red hymnal. Cure thy children's warring madness. Bend our pride to thy control. Save us from weak resignation to the evils we deplore. Let the search for thy salvation be our glory evermore. The moral influence theory shows us that Jesus, our good teacher, teaches us and guides us in right living. But there are so many different ways to look at the work of Jesus. One more theory is what's referred to as Christus Victor or Christ the Victor, which talks about brokenness of the world on a cosmic level. And so in this idea, there is a cosmic battle between the forces of evil and the forces of good. Powers and principalities seek to hold this broken world at bay from God, but Jesus is able to engage in this cosmic battle and ultimately is victorious, conquering the powers of sin and death, restoring us and renewing us in our relationship with God. And one more hymn for you. A mighty fortress is our God is on page 91 in your hymnal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Because Christ is victorious, we are reconciled to God and set free from anything that would hold us back. But there are even more perspectives. There are many, many perspectives. Perhaps you'd stand over here and look upon the work of Christ and think about ontological healing with someone named T.F. Torrance. You might say, because God, beca- God became human so that we might become divine, that God, in fact, creates this divine reality with us, and the incarnation in and of itself is a gift of reconciliation. God becomes human so that we can become divine. Liberation theology 
began primarily in communities in Latin America. People like Gustavo Gutierrez, John Sabrino, Leonardo Boff looked upon the cross of Jesus, saw there the violence experienced by an innocent person, and understood how Jesus stands in solidarity with all the poor and oppressed, and that through the victory of the cross, Jesus overcomes oppression and calls communities to also stand in solidarity with any who are oppressed to work for a better world. Finally, in the 13th century, someone named John Duns Scotus looked upon the cross and reflected upon the great love that God has for all of creation and offered the perspective that when Jesus came to live among us and to die for us, it was not to change God's mind because God's mind didn't need changing. God already loved us endlessly. But rather, Jesus came to live among us and die as we do in order to change our minds and to show us the greatness of God's love for all the world. And in so doing, redeemed us and restored us and brought us into right relationship with God. This Lenten season, we will keep taking different perspectives and different vantage points from which we can look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and see how we might learn from these various perspectives. But today I want to talk particularly about another group of perspectives, specifically feminist and womanist views of the atonement. And even as I begin, I should note that there is not just one single idea in these categories. A variety of perspectives fall within this group. And I'll be mentioning more names in my sermon today than I normally do. If you'd like to have uh, references of different books and articles, if you want to read more about any of these, please, please do let me know. Each one is really worth its own conversation. But when we talk about <clears throat> feminist theology, we're talking about distinctive visions and methods in contemporary theology representing a wide range of concerns, including the critique of attitudes and practices of male domination in both church and society, the reclaiming of women's experience as indispensable theological resource, and the recovery of the long-forgotten or suppressed contributions of women in biblical literature and church history. And when we're talking about womanist theology, we're referring to the distinctive theological emphases of African-American women in the United States. Womanist theology affirms the experience of black women and the deep wisdom found in the struggle for survival under oppressive conditions. 
This uh, experience and wisdom are seen as resources for a revitalized faith. Both of those definitions are from Daniel Migliori in his book, Faith Seeking Understanding. But as we look at, at some of the things that feminist and womanist writers can help us to see in the cross, some of the positive things, we first have to look at some of the things that they caution us about. We first hear a word of no before we hear a word of yes. Many feminist and womanist writers make it clear that we need to say a emphatic no to the tragic brutality of the cross. Joanne Carlson Brown and Rebecca Parker specifically point out that the violence of the cross seen through a lens of abuse can perpetuate continued abuse and victimization of others. We've known uh, throughout church history of some examples, <clears throat> many, many decades, centuries ago, thank goodness, but still sometimes occurring, of instances where specifically women facing domestic violence were told that it was their cross to bear. This is the red flag for us and something we must say an emphatic no to. Rita Nakashima Brock cautions us that when we look at the cross, that we not paint God as a punitive father. That's a phrase she uses. Don't paint God as a punitive father. Womanist writer Dolores Williams looks upon some of these narratives and sees forced surrogacy, recalling the biblical narrative of, narrative of Hagar's life and how similar factors were repeated for persons who were enslaved. Joanne Marie Terrell rightly asks, how then in the cross can we find good news for those who have been sinned against? Perhaps, perhaps, says Elizabeth Johnson, in the cross we can see that Christ stands in solidarity with all who suffer, and through the cross God overcame the violence of the world through the power of love. Deanna Thompson and Catherine Tanner help us to look at this through the lenses of another church leader from the past, Martin Luther. In 1519, Martin Luther described what he referred to as the happy exchange. And in this metaphor, Atonement is not limited only to the cross, but rather unfolds through the relationship between Christ and humanity. So Luther draws on the concept of marriage in which, as he says, a righteous groom marries a wicked person, a bride in his metaphor, and takes on the brokenness of his partner and gives his own righteousness in exchange. Luther was perhaps drawing on an ideal of marriage in which self-giving love is 
freely shared between spouses. But Thompson and Tanner ask, what if we were to think of this as friendship, not marriage? Not let ourselves get trapped in some of the problematic gender roles that are, that are painted in Martin Luther's metaphor, but instead to think about friendship for persons of any gender being in a covenantal connection with two people. Friendship, God's atoning work is done through Jesus Christ befriending humanity through creating a relationship of faith and trust. And so to paraphrase Luther, we might say, my sins are transferred to Christ my friend. He has them. I no longer have my sins. Christ my friend has them for me. Jesus has taken our brokenness, our pain, our mistakes, and has instead given us redemption, deliverance, new life. This is the happy exchange, the great gift of God's new life given to us, even as our brokenness is taken away. Scripture paints a similar picture for us in the Gospel of John. It's there that Jesus says, No one has greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then Jesus goes on to look at the disciples and say, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Author and scholar Diana Butler Bass reminds us that this concept of friendship with God has been seen throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, Moses and Abraham are both referred to as friends of God. In Isaiah chapter 41, God refers to Abraham as my friend. And we also hear in, in Exodus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. So in Jesus, we find the fulfillment of this friendship this redeeming, restoring relationship that Christ chooses to have with us. And this idea of friendship reaches beyond simply a one-time exchange or transaction, but opens us to an ongoing reality of relationship with Jesus, daily interaction. In Jesus, then, we have a conversation partner, one who's in solidarity with us, one who is present in times of joy and our source of strength, the magnifier of our happiness. What a friend we have in Jesus. Fannie Lou Hamer was an African-American civil rights activist who led efforts to register voters and co-founded the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Hamer ran for the U.S. Senate in 1964 and the Mississippi State Senate in 1971. And through her involvement in the civil rights movement, found many, many challenges, being fired from a job, being threatened, 
arrested, beaten. Frequently, Hamer talks about the way that her faith helped her in difficult moments. And one day in particular, in August of 1962, she went with a group of people on a bus to go and register to vote. And after they left and were being followed closely by the authorities, the driver of the bus was arrested on the charge of operating a bus that too closely resembled a school bus. He was taken to jail, leaving the rest of the people on the bus to contemplate their prospects for a safe return home in a hostile and dangerous environment. Hamer stood there on the bus, started to hum, and then started to sing. Have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him all about our troubles. Hear our feeble cry. Answer by and by. Feel the little prayer wheel turning. Feel a fire a-burning. Just a little talk with Jesus makes it right. I'd encourage you to look up another song that she sang. Play the video, or the audio at least, of Jesus is my only friend. When I'm sick and can't get well, Jesus is my only friend. When my brother turns his back on me, Jesus is my only friend. Jesus had his own 40 days of reflection in the wilderness. And perhaps these 40 days that we're in right now in our Lenten season can be a time of reflection for you as well. What might it mean for you to open yourself to a friendship with Jesus in a unique way this season? What might it mean to consider any brokenness in your life, any mistakes or estrangement you feel, and know that they are no longer yours, but are taken by your friend Jesus? Jesus has joined you, thrown his lot in together with yours, taken away your brokenness, and instead offers you his perfect peace and joy. And then that relationship continues each day, a friend to talk to, to learn from, to grow with, a source of joy and strength. What a friend we have in Jesus. Thanks be to God. Amen.